Amen. Dan's going to preach for us this morning. There you go, Dan. (laughs) Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you please take them out, and would you go to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, please, as we are uh, walking through the book of Daniel um, through this uh, season. And uh, so go to Daniel chapter 8, and as you're turning there, I do want to let you know that next Sunday, um, November the 29th, we'll uh, kick off our Christmas uh, sermon series, and I was really debating how in the world am I going to make Daniel and Christmas work together, and just praying about it. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to stop the book of Daniel. I know Christmas, but Daniel, but Christmas, but Daniel and Christmas. So I'm just going to let you know, next Sunday we're starting a Christmas series called Christmas in Babylon, so get ready, all right? That's what we're doing, all right? And uh, I believe that you will be, enjoy it, and, and really it is, uh, it, it's going to be exciting, but we're going to begin that. We are going to stay in the book of Daniel. We'll finish that, um, but we're going to start it, and it will be tailored a little bit more to the Christmas uh, story as well. But Christmas in Babylon is what we'll begin next week, and we'll begin by looking at Daniel uh, chapter 9. But today, in Daniel chapter 8, um, we're going to get right into it this morning, and um, as we, um, as we look at Daniel chapter 8, I want, to, I want to share a couple of things with you to set the stage. I always feel like it's important, especially with prophecy, you have to set the stage. Does that make sense? In order for us to understand it, we really need to kind of w- need to know what's going on behind the scenes here a little bit. But, but here, let me share a couple things with you that are going to set the stage for Daniel chapter 8. Number one, you are about to hear the best sermon ever on Daniel chapter 8. You know why I know that? Because it's probably the only sermon on Daniel chapter 8 you've ever heard. That's what I'm going to let you know. You don't hear many people preach on this. And so this may be a first for many people, um, but, but this is a, a fascinating uh, chapter, but it's just not looked into much um, by pastors for, for whatever reason, which leads me to number two to set the stage for Daniel chapter 8. At quick glance of Daniel chapter 8, you may think that this, that this chapter is nothing but dry, dry as dust history. Because when we look at it, this is just, it's just history. There's, as a matter of fact, in, in chapter 8, you're not going to see um, a, a reference or you're not going to see a reference to Jesus Christ. You're really not going to see the name God mentioned per se, but, but you're going to be um, introduced and, and you're going to talk about the world's most famous non-believer, the Antichrist. But we're going to look at it through the lens of history. Now, I know that whenever you say the word history, many of you always go back to your middle school history class, right? Or your high school history class, like, man, this is just not too exciting. Not a lot of people get excited about history. Well, just be thankful that you have a pastor that loves history, all right? Because we're going to dive into some history, and so hopefully by the end of this morning, my prayer is that you will be thankful and I want you to get this, that God is active in history. When you leave today, and by the time we complete our Lord's Supper, thanking Him for what He has done for our lives, that you will walk away going, man, I'm so thankful that God is active in history. Now, you know this, and when I say this, you're going to understand it, but throughout history, from the beginning of time, God has made His presence known to every generation. Amen? 
He has made his presence known through history. And Daniel chapter 8 is no exception because if you remember, the book of Daniel is broken into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6, it's biographical. There's some stories there about Daniel and the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in Daniel chapter 7, there's a pivot. In Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we enter into the prophetic chapters. And what we see in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is this, that Daniel, through the visions that God has given him, there is an accurate detail of history. There's an accurate detail of history. Now listen, there's an accurate detail of history of the nations that have rejected the one true living God. And we are going to see the result of nations that turn their back on God and choose to follow a secularist, humanistic uh, uh, mindset, which we will see in our text today. And so my prayer is today that you will see history come alive that we will see history come alive as we, as we look into the pages of history through God's eyes and we're going, to see, we're going to see a revealing of what is really taking place on the pages of history. Now let me share with you how we're going to do this and I want you to hang with me. Look at your neighbor and say, hang with Pastor Chris. Some of you are already gone. I can tell that already. That's okay. Now let me share with you how we're going to see that God's alive and active in history through Daniel chapter 8. And I want you to write this phrase down. It's two words, and it it takes place in the book of Daniel, and it's called divine passive. I want you to write that down. Divine passive passive. Divine means God, and passive, what in the world does passive mean? Um, a divine passive, it, is, it references the use of Greek verbs. Hang with me, I told you. So doing history and English. Pastor, you've lost your mind. So what do you mean? A divine passive refers to the use of a Greek verb in the passive voice. Which means this, in context, a divine passive implies that the action of the verb is produced by God. In other words, God is the doer of the action. Are you with me? Balcony, are you with me? Three of you, fantastic. The divine passive, the divine passive is something that Daniel frequently uses. Now let me give you an example. Daniel chapter 8, verse 8, I want you to look that in your, in your Bible or on the screen. Let me give you an example of this, and we'll talk about it here in a few minutes as well. Verse 8, it says this, Then the male goats magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, here you go, the large horn was broken. Underline the phrase, the large horn was broken. Right there is a divine passive. Was broken is passive tense, right? And so a divine passive would say, look at this, this large horn, whoever it is, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, the large horn did not break by itself. Are you with me? A divine passive says something happened to that large horn and it was caused by the divine. And so all throughout the book of Daniel, we see these divine passives. And these divine passives remind us that God is active in history. When you went through your history classes in middle school and high school and college, and some of you maybe have majored in history, when you study the pages of secular history, what you never learn in secular history, who the instrument behind the history is. The instrument behind all of history is the divine passive, meaning there is somebody who is behind the scenes who is orchestrating all of these events. 
The divine passive is extremely important in understanding the book of Daniel and what these visions are all about. And here's number three. Number three is setting the stage for Daniel chapter eight because this chapter is extremely important. The book of Daniel, you may or may not know this, but the book of Daniel has become the focal point of liberal critics, of liberal scholars who, who attack the accuracy, the reliability, and the truthfulness of God's Word. So the book of Daniel, what we have been studying, and beginning really here in chapter 7 and working all the way through chapter 12, what we are reading are some of the most attacked pages of Scripture. And they are attacked, and I want you to listen to me, they are attacked by liberal scholars, and they are attacked by modern scholars, because there is a rise in modern liberal theology. Are you with me? And so students, when you go to college and you sit in history classes and you sit in science classes, you, it is a great possibility that you'll sit under teachers and professors that say that the Bible is false, it cannot be accurate, and it is not accurate, and they will challenge your belief on the reliability, the faithfulness, and the accuracy, and the truthfulness of Scripture. And critics go here to Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And so when we study this, this is extremely important that we, moms, dads, grandparents, as we raise our students, as we raise our sons and our daughters in the ways of the Lord, it is important that we understand that God's Word is accurate, it is reliable, and it is truthful. Josh McDowell, uh, we had him speak here a couple of years ago. Um, Josh McDowell, a great uh, apologist, uh, he wrote a book titled Daniel in the Critics' Den. Isn't that pretty good? Instead of Daniel in the Lions' Den, Daniel in the Critics' Den. And he writes this, that atheists and liberal theologians focus here on the book of Daniel to debunk the reliability of God's Word. Now, why are critics going after Daniel chapter 8? Why are they going after Daniel chapter 9? Let me tell you why. They're going after these chapters because these chapters, they tell the story about a vision that God gave Daniel that has already been fulfilled. So what we read in chapter 8, it's already been fulfilled. But when Daniel writes it, has it been fulfilled? No, it's called prophecy. But when we look back on it, we see that it has been fulfilled. And so, so liberal scholars, modern theologians will argue that the book of Daniel was written in 150 B.C. I want you to write that down. 150 B.C. That would be around the 2nd century B.C. This is the argument. And the argument is this, that, that Daniel could not have written with accuracy all the details that we see in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, 12. Does that make sense? And so using your finite mind, using the mind that is limited, liberal theologians and modern scholars and modern theologians will say, there's no human possible way 
that a man could foretell with accuracy everything that has happened. So they believe Daniel, another person posing at Daniel, looks back and then writes the book of Daniel. There's the argument. Well, for the overwhelming majority of Christianity's history, conservative scholars and I agree with this, believe that the book of Daniel, I want you to write this down, the book of Daniel was written around 550 B.C., which is roughly the 6th century B.C. Now, I told you to hang with me, didn't I? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Are you hanging? Are you hanging? Why is this important? Why is it important? Why am I spending some time talking about when Daniel was written, the date that it was written? Let me tell you why. I'm going to give you two quotes here, and they'll be on the screen. William Newell, great expositor of God's Word, and he wrote the great song in our hymnal at Calvary. He said this, and it's on the screen. Follow along and just listen to what he says. William Newell said, the reliability of much of Scripture depends upon the reliability of what? Daniel. And Daniel's reliability is important because of the prophecy it contains. If the keys of the Bible up to the book of Psalms hang on Moses' books, those of the rest of the Bible through Revelation hang on the book of Daniel. Look at your neighbor and say, that's pretty good. Do you believe that? Let me tell you what somebody else said. Erwin Jenkins, a scholar on, on prophecy, he said this as well. He said, the best proof for the inspiration of the Scripture is prophecy. Daniel 7 through 12 in the book of Revelation. But because the prophet, I want you to listen to this because this is true. But because the professing church has allowed false teachers to come in, prophecy has been neglected and laid aside as untenable. Meaning that prophecy, there's no need for us to speak it or to teach it or to preach it. When this is done, I want you to listen. Let's see if this is the United States. When this is done, The people fall prey to every wind of doctrine, eventually disbelieving the Bible is the Word of God. Can you say our entire education system? Prophecy is the most sturdy rung in the ladder of the Christian faith. Wow. So do you see why I'm talking a little bit more in depth about the importance of when this book is written and why we believe and hold to a what is considered an an early writing in the sixth century bc listen i believe this i believe this with all of my heart and to come under even more uh, conviction as i studied this when we study chapter eight and we look at this and we study the rest of the book of daniel uh, i believe with all of my heart the reliability of god's word the truthfulness of god's word the accuracy of god's word it is at stake It is at stake in what we believe. It is at stake in what we pass down to our sons and our daughters who go off into ungodly educational systems who will will terrify them by stating that the Bible is not true and they can't defend it. Well, here's what I know. That if Daniel or somebody posing as Daniel looks back in time and writes all of these events down in the 2nd century B.C., But this man, Daniel, as we read, claims that this happened before he wrote them down. What would we call the book of Daniel? We would call it a book of what? Lies. Are you with me? Look at your neighbor and say, Pastor, I'm barely hanging on. 
if you hold to a late writing in the second century BC, you claim that Daniel's a liar. If you claim that Daniel is a liar, then let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus said this. He talks about the the abomination of desolation, that which Daniel talked about. So if Daniel's a liar, and if Jesus quotes Daniel, then you cannot say, and he affirms Daniel's teaching, then you cannot say that Jesus is omniscient. Therefore, Jesus is a liar. Well, so what we are reading today is extremely important in the life of our church, of our children, and of our country. And write that down because I just thought of that and they all started with the letter C. That was pretty good. (laughs) Children, churches, and country. Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 8. Are you with me this morning? You think we're going to make it all the way through chapter 8? No. But that's okay. (laughs) Because at the end of this message, we are going to give thanks to our Heavenly Father through the Lord's Supper. Look at verse number 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, you remember him, the king of Babylon, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Daniel's first vision came in Daniel chapter 7. That took place in the year about 553 B.C. And so this second vision that Daniel has, it takes place around 551, 550 B.C. Again, that's very important to some dates that are going to come later when we're introduced to some some, uh, kings and some kingdoms. Verse number 2. I, Daniel, looked in the vision, and while I was looking in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. So, just picture this. Daniel is being transported. He's in a dream. He's in a vision. And in this dream, in this vision, he is now in another city. Now, remember, Daniel lives in where? Babylon. He serves under a Babylonian king. Now, in this dream, in this vision, God has has transported him to the citadel of Susa. Now, what do we know historically both secular and theological, what do we know about Susa? Susa becomes the capital city of the Medes and the Persians. Is this starting to make sense? He's been transported to Susa. Now, let me give you a little theological, biblical um, uh, just information for, for you. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. The entire book of Esther, guess where it takes place? Susa. Nehemiah, before he leaves and goes to Jerusalem to restore the walls of of Jerusalem, guess where he lives? Susa. Susa plays an important role in the life of the Jewish people. Well, so he's in Susa, the capital city of the Medes and Persians. Now, here's a question. Have the Medes and Persians began their kingdom yet? No. No. So he's in the future. Verse 3, then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, a ram which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Now who is this ram? If you don't know, don't guess. Just read Scripture, because Scripture interprets Scripture. 
Look over at verse number 20. Look over at verse number 20 because here's the great thing about Daniel chapter 8. It tells you everything. We don't have to guess. It tells you everything. Look at Daniel chapter 8 verse 20. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of who? Media and Persia. This is the Medes and the Persian um, Empire. So as we walk through the book of Daniel, you should automatically think of the statue from Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now you remember in that dream, he sees this great statue. The statue has a head of gold, which represents what kingdom? Babylon. And then he sees on the statue, he sees a great statue of, with, with the arms. The arms are made out of what? silver, but the two arms we are now learning, and we have learned in Daniel chapter 7, that these two arms represent the Medes and the Persians. So we see this vision that God is becoming more and more and more detailed. Think of concentric circles. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and we're going to keep going smaller and smaller till we get very, very detailed about the end times. So Daniel 2, Daniel 7, we read of this second kingdom who is represented by a by bear who raises up on one side, which, which uh, symbolizes that one of those arms is going to be stronger than the other, all right? And so we know that this is the Persian Empire. Look at verse number 4. Now here's what he sees. I see the ram, the Medes and the Persians, the one with two horns, one larger than the other, budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. So at this time, or at the time of the Medes and Persians, they become the world's largest landmass, largest kingdom. Now, it hasn't started yet when Daniel is seeing this vision, but it becomes the largest kingdom ever at that time. And guess which direction the kingdom moves? Can I give you a hint? Three directions. It's right here in Scripture. Because Persia, the Medes and the Persians, begin in modern-day Iran, and they move, they move westward. Historically, here's what we know. Historically, they conquered Babylon, Daniel chapter 5. They moved westward. They moved north. Historically, secular history, we know this. They conquered Armenia. They moved south. We know uh, historically in secular history, they conquered Egypt. And here's the great thing, folks. Scripture tells us exactly what this kingdom did and will do before this kingdom ever comes in existence. So here's what happened. God's looking in the future as, as it is in the past. That'll keep you up at night, won't it? God's looking in the future and is explaining it as it is in the past. I want you to write this down because theologians call this, it's called historical fulfillment. Historical fulfillment. So we could actually stop here in verse number 4 and we could make the application that verse 4 testifies to the accuracy and the, and the faithfulness of God's Word. Amen? One of you said amen to that. So let me back up. Let me say this again. We could stop at verse number four, right here, because God's Word has told us what is going to happen. We know through secular history exactly what the Medes and the Persians have done. Isn't that correct? We know exactly what they've done through secular history. We knew what they were going to do before it happened, or Daniel did. And so because of that, we could stop right here and say to all the liberal theologians and to the, all the modern scholars who debunked the reliability of Scripture, we could stop right here at verse number four and say, listen, God's Word is accurate, it is faithful, and it is true. Amen? 
And if we don't hold to that, we will lose the next generation. This is vital. I'll get off my soapbox now. But the point is, you and I can trust God's Word. You can trust it. I don't know what you may be going through right now, but I know this, that you can trust God's Word. He's proved Himself faithful over and over and over and over and over again. And He will prove Himself faithful in whatever you face next. How do I know that? He's done it before, and He's going to do it again. This is what we learn. Well, verse number 4. Continue on reading at the end of verse number 4. But this, but this ram, the Medes and the Persians, this king, he did as he pleased and he magnified himself. That's what politicians do, isn't that right? They magnify themselves. They, gain, they gained their position by the providential hand of God, then it goes to their head. Have you ever seen that happen before? Will Durant, a a historian, he said this, and I read this early in the week, and I just began to think about this, and, and it makes sense. Will Durant said this, kings and kingdoms begin stoic, but end up Epicurean. Now, hang with me, and let me tell you what, I, what, what he means by that, because I believe this. Because we see this phrase, he magnified himself. We see that over and over again in the kings and the kingdoms of the world. Kings and kingdoms begin stoic, but end up Epicurean. A Stoics believe that there is a sense of rule and, and honor and integrity and justice. Uh, virtuous behavior. This is the Stoics. This is what they believe, that, that there's rules, there's guidelines, there's law. We need to be upright. When we are upright, we are here for the betterment of man because when we do right, then that leads other people to do what's right. That's, that's Stoic. And he says that all kings and kingdoms believe and begin with, uh, kingdoms begin with this idea that we've got to be righteous in our rule, that we need to uh, have a sense of justice and a sense of righteousness. And then Will says, Will Durant says this, but then every kingdom begins to break from all things that which is ripe, and all kingdoms end up in perversion. You see, Epicureans believe this. Move from Stoic to Epicureanism. Uh, Epicureanism believes this, that we need to avoid all types of pain while increasing all types of selfish pleasure. I'm just so thankful that that has not happened in the United States. Amen? That was a joke. That was a joke. Where do you think we are as a country? Stoic? Epicurean? Pleasure. It's all about pleasure. Well, verse 5. While I was was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west… Do you think that direction means anything? Yes, it does. Well, I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, symbolizing how fast this new, uh, this, this male goat is, is coming from the west. And this goat, he had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Well, who in the world is this goat? We don't have to guess. Look at verse number 21. Verse number 21, and I love this description because this is a new uh, description of this goat. The shaggy goat. Don't you love that? The shaggy goat. 
represents the kingdom of Greece. Has this kingdom been in existence when Daniel is writing this? No. And the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. You know this. Who is the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. Wow. Remember studying him in history? Alexander the Great. Now let's step back and remember I told you that we believe and we hold to the fact that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C., 550 B.C., give or take a couple years there. When Daniel receives this dream and when Daniel writes this down, Greece is nothing but a group of farmers. They're just farmers. They're just a group of a group of groups. They haven't yet informed yet. So again, it's a reminder that God sees tomorrow like it was yesterday. Meaning God's active. Look at verse number seven. I mean, in this exciting, I mean, I just feel the energy in the room this morning. <clears throat> verse number seven. And it says this. Uh, I saw him. I saw him, the goat, come beside the ram, this ram who had two horns. This is the Medes and the Persians. And he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and he shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. Question, can God pull the plug on any nation at any time? Can God pull the plug on the United States of America? Has he already started to pull the cord away? I think he has. But God can do it. I just want to share that with you to encourage you today during this Thanksgiving season. Just, I just want to let you know that. He came up to the ram who had two horns and he was enraged at him. He struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Now, I want you to look at that phrase, and he was enraged at him. The goat was enraged at the ram. Now, we can't see this necessarily in our text in the book of Daniel. But what we can do, we can look at secular history to find out why the ram was angry or enraged at, or excuse me, why the goat was enraged at the ram. Read history books. Alexander the Great loved to carry grudges. 150 years before Alexander the Great even becomes close to being on the throne, the Persians try to attack Greece. And they do attack Greece. And just recently there was a movie that was produced about one of the battles of the Greco-Persian War, and it's called 300. Some of you may have seen that. Well, after that battle, the Persians and the Greeks continue to have many, many more battles during this Greco-Persian War. And it was at the Battle of Marathon. It was at the Battle of Marathon, which some scholars say actually inspired Alexander the Great. It's at the Battle of Marathon that the Greeks actually won a battle. And it's where we get our idea of the distance of a marathon. Because it's during this time that a Greek warrior named Pheidippides that after the Greek victory over the Persians ran roughly 26 miles from Sparta to Athens, and he declared victory. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because this is called historical fulfillment. So, 
for those of you who enjoy running marathons, you're welcome. It's a godly thing. No, it's not. So once again, God's Word is proving itself true in history. He tells us what's going to happen, and then it happens, and we can look back, and it's all in a straight line. Verse number 8. Then this male goat, he magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. What's that phrase called? Divine passive. Five of you will get a Snickers bar at the end of this service. You got it right. It's a divine passive. The large horn was broken. You see, what happened with Alexander the Great at the height of his career, at the age of 32, 33 years old, he had conquered pretty much the entire Middle East part of Europe, and he was working his way towards Asia. Uh, Alexander the Great died, and he actually died in Babylon, and he died an alcoholic who had come down with malaria. Now, secular history and liberal theologians would say that alcohol and malaria is what broke that horn. But I beg to differ. Who broke this large horn? God. God did. Scripture tells us this, that exaltation does not come from the east or the west, but it is God who raises up one and puts down another. And this text goes on to say that in his place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. You remember Daniel chapter 7? The vision of the beast, the leopard, he had how many heads? Had four heads. Four heads. Right here, the four conspicuous horns. horns. These are the four uh, heads that they are uh, looking towards the four winds of heaven. And look at verse number 9. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. This is not the same thing from the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, although there are some connections. This is very specific here. God's vision is very specific here. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn who grew up exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. What do you think the land is that's called beautiful? What do you think that is? Starts with I and ends with Israel. It's Israel. And so what we know is this, that this, this small horn which grew exceedingly great. He is a Greek uh, leader. He's a, a Greek king. He comes out of this, this, this male goat Grecian kingdom. And he has one goal, and that is to turn Israel Greek. And he wants to turn Israel into a secularist, humanistic society. And his name from history is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We know who this is from history and from Scripture. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Now, let me read verses 10, 11, and 12 for you, and then let me explain who he is, and then we will, and then we will conclude. First, listen to this man. It, the small horn, Antiochus IV, 
grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Uh, stars and host relate back to um, or describes the nation of Israel, the people, the Jewish people. Verse number 11. It, the small horn, Antiochus, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who do you think the commander of the host is? It's God. He considers himself God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Meaning, you can't go to church. You follow me? California, Oregon, are you listening to me? It's called the spirit of the Antichrist. Look at verse 12. And on account of transgressions, because some people ask, why do the Jewish people continue to go through all this persecution and suffering? I wrestled with that. It's one of the biggest things I wrestled. Why, God? Why? You're God. Take care of it. Why? 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 Verse 12 gives us the reason. On account of what? Transgressions. What's that called? Sin. God clearly said, you obey me, we're good. You disobey me, I'm sending other nations for you. Isn't that correct? This is just a fulfillment of uh, the Deuteronomic promise. All Scripture ties together. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, meaning Israel will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and it prosper. Let me just stop here for just a few moments because I'm not going to read the rest of this chapter, but I do want to encourage you to read the rest of it because whenever um, it talks about a king in the rest of the chapter, it's talking about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And here's what you need to know about him. I want you to write this down. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he is a prototype antichrist. This is the picture of the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist, but he has the characteristic traits of the Antichrist. Antiochus, when he becomes king, he decides to rename himself Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifests himself in me. How would you like that? The Jewish people actually called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means you are the madman. That's what it means. Now, let me share with you what Antiochus IV did. This is brutal. But I share this with you because it's the spirit of the Antichrist. Are you with me? And the church needs to listen. Governments need to listen. States need to listen. Moms, dads, you need to listen as you raise your sons and your daughters in our current secularistic, humanistic society. You can read in Scripture. You can read in the history books. What I'm sharing with you is not made up. This is true. Antiochus IV, throughout his entire reign, from 175 to 164 B.C., over 300 years after Daniel has this vision, Throughout his reign, he continually waged war against the Jews and against the saints of God. He wanted to wipe them out. He made it illegal to own a copy of the law of God. 
He made it illegal to be circumcised, which is the sign of a Jew. One historian said this, and this is, this is graphic, but I want you to catch the gravity of it. Antiochus IV circumcised, he said this, that circumcised male babies were put to death. Remember infanticide? The killing of young babies is a spirit of the Antichrist. All circumcised male babies were put to death, and then they were hung around the necks of their mothers. Who were then paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and then pushed off a cliff and dashed to pieces below. Antiochus IV, the spirit of the Antichrist, who is, he's very clever. It's what the scripture says, verses 23 through 25. He's very clever. He's very, uh, he is an influencer. He made it his goal to change the culture. And he made it the goal to change the culture by going after the young boys and girls. Does that make sense? To change a culture, you go after the children. To change a culture, you say that it's okay to kill a baby. Then if you keep the baby, you tell that young child who cannot make a decision by himself because the brain is not ready to make a decision, the emotions are not ready to make a decision, So you give birth to this child, and then you tell this child, well, you can choose what sex you want to be. And if you don't want that, then we can change it later. Antiochus Epiphanes, he did this by making all Jewish boys go to what's called a gymnasium. The Greeks started the gyms. But in those days, if you worked out at a gym, you did it in the nude. And so Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he glorified the nude body. Does that make sense with anybody? Do you see our culture glorifying the nude body today? That we would willingly give up our sons and our daughters for every type of pleasure? It's called the spirit of the Antichrist. It goes on to say about Antiochus that he then took a statue of Zeus and he put it in the holiest of holies in the temple. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And he made all the Jews worship. And if you did not worship him, you were automatically murdered. If you are found with a copy of the law of God, you are immediately put to death. And then verse number 12, it says this, the truth was cast to the ground. This is the characteristic of the Antichrist. And in Revelations chapter 12, 13, 14, and on, you will see that that spirit will rule the world. Well, thought I'd want to share an encouraging message this morning on Thanksgiving. But look at verse number 25, and you don't have, it's not on the screen, but look at verse number 25. The very end of verse 25, it says this, and this brings us great joy. Look at verse 25, it says this, but he will be broken. Divine passive, 
and divine future. He will be broken without human agency, meaning he will not be taken down by man. He will be taken down by God. Let me tell you how he died. After committing all of these brutalities in Israel, he he traveled around to conquer more territory. And while he was in Babylon, he received word that the Jews were led by the heroic Judas Maccabeus. You ever heard of the Maccabean revolts? Right here. Right here. History. Right here. Catholics have a book in their Bible called First Maccabees. Right here. The Maccabean Revolt. Well, in, in Babylon, uh, Antiochus heard about Judas Maccabeus. Uh, Jews call him Judas the Hammer. I like that verse or that name, Judas the Hammer. And Judas Maccabeus decided to take over Jerusalem and to restore and to cleanse the temple. When Antiochus heard this, he immediately turned around and went straight to Jerusalem. On the way, he had a crash. And while recovering, he contracted gangrene. Can you say thank you, Jesus? And he wasted away in a very wretched, painful way. He did not die by the hand of man. He died by the hand of God. Martin Luther said this about Antiochus. He said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I love that. And the Jewish people love that story too because every year during the month of December, the Jewish people remember the retaking of Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple by Judas Maccabeus, and they call it the festival of, does anybody know? Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And according to tradition, when uh, Maccabeus, Judas went in and and lit the menorah in the temple, uh, there was only enough oil to light the menorah for, for one day, but miraculously it lit for eight days. And according to Jewish theology, the temple was re-consecrated and it was cleansed on December 25th, 165 B.C. Wow. Wow. Now, as we step back from this, and as we begin to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I think it's very important for us to understand and know through all of this that number one, the Word of God is true. Amen? It is accurate, it is reliable, and it is faithful, and it is truthful. And reading this scripture ought to increase our confidence in God, knowing that, that, that He who knows the future actually ordains the future, and we are in His hands. The Word of God is true. But then we need to understand this, that reading this Scripture and reading the spirit of the Antichrist, here's what we need to know, and here's what we need to stand up and proclaim to the world. Mankind is not getting better. We are not getting better. I know that we like to tell our sons and our daughters that it's going to get better. Right? But theologically, we cannot say that. It is not getting better. We've made some major strides in technological advances. I mean, goodness gracious, even today, all-in-one communion packets. But the world is in a downward spiral that will culminate in the Antichrist.
and will culminate in believers in Jesus Christ and Jewish people, we will be persecuted. We will lose rights. We will be called on the carpet. But here's what we know. That even though mankind is not getting better, we have the solution. It's the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that God is in control of all the nations. God's in control of what happens. God knows exactly what is happening. When Nebuchadnezzar boasted, magnified himself, God said, eat like a cow. When Belshazzar drank from the, from, the, from the vessels from the Holy of Holies, God said, do not mock me, and he took him out. Antiochus, who claimed himself to be God, and destroys and wants to destroy all believers, all Jews, God says, enough. You will go no further. Nebuchadnezzar, you will not cross this line. Belshazzar, you will not cross this line. Antiochus, you will not cross this line. That should bring us great, new, great joy to know this, that our persecution and our suffering and our difficulties, it will only last so long. It will come to a point where God will yell into creation, enough. Evil, you will not cross this line. Your suffering will not go on. Your persecution will not go on. Know this. God has set a limit on what is going to happen. And because there is a limit, here's what we need to know. As believers in Christ, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. The Antichrist is going to come. The spirit of the Antichrist is rising in this world. But we should not be afraid because if we know the Lord, we have joined ourselves with the one true victor named Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he alone is the one who overcomes all. And if we have been aligned with him, we are considered victorious and we walk in victory even in the midst of a society that is going far, far, far away. We have the victory. We have the victory. No matter who's president, no matter who's a senator, but you better vote. <laughs> just think what that pastor is saying. I'm just telling you. Just think what that pastor who wants to be a senator, just look what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. And then compare it. It ain't true what he's saying. I'm just letting you know. Somebody's coming after me on that one. But that's fine. Because I've won and we've won. So today, as we make our way to the Lord's table, here's what I ask you to do. Come to the cross. Bow your knee. Humble your heart. And say to the Father, Thank you. Thank you that there is a limit. And thank you that your blood has given us the victory. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today.
We come before you at this moment. We thank you for history, that you are active in history. And we thank you that you know exactly what's going on. And we thank you that you have and you will, you are going to, it's your promise that you will defeat the Antichrist. And we as believers in you will reign supreme with you. And we look forward to that day. And it's all because of your blood that you shed on the cross of Calvary. And we say thank you. Father, we now humble ourselves. We do not magnify ourselves. We magnify Christ as Lord. And may this moment be beautiful in your sight, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll go ahead and take out your all-in-one communion packets. I want to read some scriptures to you. Paul addresses how we are to take the Lord's Supper. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on that night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At this time, I want you to take the bread. Now, let me explain this to you. Some of you have already done it. I can hear the wrappers. Take the pointy edge, push down. Release, and there is a film that will stay, remain straight. That's the film that covers the bread. Please, at this time, tear the film back to take out the bread. Does everybody have a cup? If you need one, anybody need any help? Take out the bread. All right. Jesus said these words. He said this. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for your body that was beaten for us. Thank you for taking the penalty of our sins. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus went on to say that night, he said this, in the same way, he took the cup. This, is, this cup is the covenant of my blood. So at this time, take your cup, peel back the film that contains the juice. Parents, you may have to help your sons or your daughters. Okay. Everybody have it? All right. Jesus said, this is the cup. This is my blood. It's the new covenant. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for your blood that was shed for me to give us new life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen.